Well, hi everybody, it's Toby Miller here. Welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. I'm in the Yard House with Julianne Allison and family. And the Yard House, which I've been to before, has a wonderful sign up, Julianne, that I'd never noticed before that says, because of the social atmosphere here on Thursday, Friday, and Saturday nights, we ask you to show a form of payment before 10 p.m. <laughs> I don't think I noticed that either. And I love this idea of social, which I think means drunken, mm-hmm. right? But as you Definitely. tumble out into the car park, we want to make sure you're not doing a runner without paying. Right, right, right. Now, did you ever do that when you were a student? Actually, I didn't. I was very good. You were a good girl. I was very good. Very good. Now, why was that? I don't think I began drinking until fairly late. And so, um, and I drank cheap. And there never seemed to be a need. So didn't do runners out the toilet through the windows and no, things like no, that? No, 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 no. I never did that, did that kind of thing. That's I, very impressive. Yeah. Maybe that's why you became a political scientist, because of your, your faith in <laughs> the law. No, I fell into it. You fell into it? I fell into it. I was interested in international relations. I thought I wanted to be uh, an international attorney and work for the government in some capacity. And while I was going to school, going to undergraduate uh, school, I took some law classes, so sat in. And I thought, I hate this. I absolutely hate it. I don't want to do it. And, and I don't want to do this. Law in the United States is almost exclusively a graduate degree, or as in right. many countries, you can do it as an undergrad. Mm-hmm. And, and you did, you actually, quite unusual in studying international relations in a department called that. International relations. At University of Southern California. Southern California. It's not a discipline normally, is it? It's not right. its own department. It's certainly right. part of political science. Right. So I was very lucky, actually, at USC. I um, did two complete, what they call, uh, departmental degrees instead of a divisional degree. So it wasn't as if one set of courses overlapped. I literally did two BAs, oh, one in international okay. relations and one in print journalism. Oh. And... Um, when I finished with that, I applied both to graduate school and to newspapers. But you realized law school wasn't for you law because of having sat in on these. Law what was it that out. turned you off between the ages of 17 and you know, 20 or something? Well, I think there were two things. One, at USC at the time, the classes were relatively small. So first off, to walk into a theater-sized classroom and then the uh, instructor literally yelled at the students and expected these prompt responses of rote information. I just thought that is just not the way that I function. That's just not an environment I want to be in. So it's like uh, the paper chase? Right, right, right. The novel and the movie movie and TV series people may be familiar with, Mm -hmm. which is set at maybe Harvard or Yale Law School Yeah, yeah, one of the Ivy schools, I think schools. Where it's trial by fire for the students, isn't it? Right, and I thought that was just hell to go through when I didn't want to be an attorney per se. So I applied, like I said, to um, both newspapers and to graduate school. And um, the closest I got was to work for a free paper in Northern California with no, with no pay. So that wasn't going to work. Free all round. Right. So, exactly. So I thought, well, that's not going to work. And then I got people willing to pay me to go to graduate school. So I did that, and my instructors had said it's very difficult to get a job in international relations. You're better off to the major of political science. So I switched majors to political science, but um, as I tell my students, um, I haven't taken American government institutions, any of that, since I was in high school. I mean, that's just not part of my life. It wasn't part of your undergraduate background. Not part of my life, no. (laughs) So I always have to qualify. Yes, I I do political science, but it's international relations, political economy, gender, environment, 
yes. those sorts of things. And and this, I think, is the making of you for people like me, of course, mm -hmm. because political science in this country is so scary. Mm -hmm. I think I'm not talking about University of California Riverside, where where we work, but in general, political science is very scary. Mm -hmm. It can be in the United States be. to me. It, yeah, yeah. Well, politics is uh, yeah, and, and then the study of it's become very quantitative. Um, very, in many cases, not all, but disengaged from what people understand. And so I know that students um, are often taken aback when they come in to study political science and they think they're studying history and government. And what they find out instead is they're studying statistical analyses of a, you know, a phenomenon over a long period of time, or they're studying game theoretic models. Yes. And um, increasingly this happens even at the, at the entry level which is very appropriate for professionalizing students who may go on to graduate school, preparing them for their courses in the, in the discipline. But, um, I, you know what, I might be, it's, it's cool, I mean, outside, I'm gonna do the soup. The soup? The um, tortilla soup. The bowl? Yeah, with the chicken. And I know he wants the chicken wings from Buffalo, Buffalo wings. wings. Boneless or with bone? Boneless? Is it possible to have the penne without the chicken, please? Yeah. I'm a vegetarian, so... Oh, do you want to do our garden? What's that? It's our vegetarian chicken, like our soy chicken or whatever. Oh, I see. No, I don't like those substitutes, no, don't actually. Like substitutes. Funnily enough, no. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, one of the things that happened to me when I gave up eating meat, I actually lost the taste, taste of it. So the substitutes uh -huh. don't work, work for me. There you go. Yeah, I, I don't... <laughs> I might as well be eating the real thing if you see what I mean. So no, I'll be very happy if you can do the penne minus the chicken. Okay. Cheers. Okay. So we'll give you... Right. Well, you keep one, because keep I one. saw something in the brownie family on the special. Oh, good. So, okay. so we'll just leave that one. There we go. Thank you very much. So getting back to this, um, this issue of the undergraduate curriculum, and not just undergraduate curriculum, but more generally, I'm, uh, I'm struck by the game theoretical model. Mm -hmm. Uh, which, for those who were not involved at all in these fields, was extremely important actually in international relations mm -hmm. before mm -hmm. it was really in much of political science because mm -hmm. it was core to establishing the likelihood or otherwise of mutually assured destruction right. and nuclear right. deterrence during right. the Cold War, right? Mm -hmm. And that's where a lot of it really got mm -hmm. going. Mm -hmm. And, and similar, in fact, before that, uh, during the Second World War, with trying to work out the probability of how the Japanese Navy would right. operate in the Pacific. So it actually begins in your field, doesn't right. it? Right, and my way. dissertation was actually a model. I solved uh -huh. a model. That was the gist of it. Um, I don't do much of it now, mostly because of my children. It's very difficult. <laughs> you got to look then. <laughs> yes. It's, I found, it might not be true for everyone, but I found it's very difficult to hold the model in my mind and be able to switch between that kind of work and other sorts of work. So I basically dropped it. And now that my youngest is seven, I'm entertaining the idea of going back to some of it because I'm very well trained in it, but... Um, so is it a particular kind of abstraction that doesn't seem to work well with the very material engagement with young children? Um, I'm, not, I, I'm not naturally a very detail-oriented person. So when you solve the models, at least the, the models that I worked with at the time, they're highly mathematical. 
And so to sort of put that down and nurse your child, put that down, go teach a class, put that down, and whatever you need to do, I would come back to it and have to start from the beginning to get to where I was. So I wasn't able to hold all of that without sort of fretting in the back of my mind that I was leaving something out and forgotten to carry something over, was being, I, I like beautiful things. And so it's very easy for me to be caught up in the beautiful solution as opposed to the correct solution. So <laughs> I thought it was better off sort of not working with that and then that opened up doing other kinds of work so it's been fine. Well that's interesting. So in other words, you could you could be a rat choice person quite easily and happily and may well be again. Right. Well I wonder if I would be rat choice per se, but I might engage in some of the models and using them as appropriate. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if I buy the mindset yeah, entirely. Well, you know, there used to be, there still is rational choice Marxism. I don't know whether I ever really point it counter rational choice feminism. Is it out there? I have not seen it, to be quite honest. I'm actually reviewing a number of texts on feminist methodology and have seen nothing on rational choice like, like or... That. Um, for games, at the outset it would seem natural that you wouldn't see it because much of the feminist uh, methodology, the literatures, are sort of coming out against that or at least filling in the holes where that wouldn't be. That said, there is feminist scholarship that is quite quantitative and some of the hypotheses are rational choice based. Yeah. Um, I don't, I'd have to really think about it. I don't think I've seen anything that solves a model, generates hypotheses, and does statistical analyses on issues relevant to, if not feminism, then women in politics. Yeah. Yeah. But you do see the pieces. You do see that they've taken you know, a, a particular um, hypothesis that has some rational choice foundations and right. done work with it. So it's not. It's not completely impossible that you might see those things come together. It's just not a natural fit. If, if you think about, in the case of Marxism, people like John Elster. Oh yeah, exactly. Then it's amazing how well, within a certain understanding, it fits there. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. In any event, so okay, your your dissertation then was solving a problem. A model, it was a model. It was a model on. It was international. It was actually a, a bargaining game that um, modeled interactions and environmental negotiations. So I solved that, generated some hypotheses, and then did case study work in Canada, the United States, and Mexico, just all on air quality issues. And what made you choose those countries? Well, I guess they're all part of North America. Well, proximity was was one thing. Yeah. Um, this is one of those things that they teach you in graduate school. You, you don't admit that since my dissertation is far gone and the publications that might come from it are well over. Um, I chose um, I chose the United States and Mexico and Canada to stick with North America primarily because I selected air quality. And air quality issues are pretty easy to find anywhere that you go. And I wanted to do my dissertation quickly. And since... Um, I'm not as fluent now as I once was, but because at the time I was fluent in uh, both Spanish and French, it was a nice fit. I could not go very far, finish my dissertation in a year, 
and it was fine. It was a current issue. It was the, the they were doing. They just done. Um, it was at the time of NAFTA, so we had the environmental side agreement. North American Free Trade Agreement, which. Uh, was ultimately passed by the U.S. Congress in 1994, which involves these three countries in a certain amount of uh, barrier-free economic exchange. Right. So, on the Mexico side, I could look at very current events, being the, the side agreement, and on the Canadian side, it was that was that was uh, coterminous with the um, signing of the uh, agreement on on uh, acid rain. So it worked out really well at that time to look at those two things. And um, I didn't also want to do a statistical analysis. I didn't, at the time there wasn't a lot of data on, um, on an international environmental accords. Now there's a very nice database. At the time, those of us who were doing case studies were contributing to that to database. To a database. No. Right. So, what am I? But just to back up a little bit, one of, as a as a PhD student, since I was really only interested in international relations substantively, and you have to pick two fields. My other field was methods. So the you know the dissertation would naturally want to demonstrate your method your methods your ability to do that. Um, there weren't really any statistics available, so I decided to focus on the model and do case studies. And there was already, wasn't there, a treaty between the United States and Mexico from the 80s mm -hmm. about dealing with environmental side effects of trade? Is that right? Have I got that right? Not, not so much environmental side effects of trade, um, but they did have, since I was focusing on acid rain, they did have agreements having to do in particular with acid deposition, because uh -huh. on the U.S.-Mexico border, it's um, dry deposition, it's not rain. There are regular currents that move back and forth across the border. But what was happening is in California, Texas, and Arizona, um, the uh, air quality management districts that are in charge of, of enforcing or putting into place implementing federal law were um, couldn't do it. They were perpetually out of compliance. And so this agreement addressed that by allowing them to basically X out the um, deposition that was coming in from Mexico to try to help them come into compliance. It hasn't helped California. The South Coast Air Quality Management District remains wildly out of compliance, but it did help <laughs> some of the other states. But that's the main international agreement. There are a number of things that, um, because I was looking at international discussions and negotiations, um, at the U.S.-Mexico and U.S.-Canadian border, there actually are a lot of agreements. There are a lot of things that parties on both sides do subnationally, informally, right? And that so there very well might be something. I've got a feeling there was an that. some accord that occurred under the Reagan administration mm -hmm. about trade between Mexico and the United States, but it may have been about manufacturing. And specific, Maybe the Maculadoras, the agreements. Yeah, it might have been something to do with them. It mightn't have been directly related to air quality. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I think there's there's something about cleaning up mm -hmm. in the other country's zone mm -hmm. detritus that derives from your economic activities. Right, right. As right. I recall. Well I know that there were some agreements that had to they had to do specifically they didn't only cover the Maculadoras, but were prompted by the Maculadora activities. And there were actually sort of two of them. One of them wasn't so much air quality, but it was um, Americans needed to take responsibility for the effluent coming from the Maculadoras. 
So they needed to demonstrate that that was either dealt with in terms of um, the Mexicans' own laws, which are on the books very much like Americans, so it would be American standards. So they either needed to do that, or they had to demonstrate that the, um, that the waste, because it could be water, it could be air, it could be, was somehow coming back over that we were bringing it back in. And um, in my interviewing, I actually met with the EPA people, talked about where a lot of attorneys... Environmental Protection Agency, the United States Federal Institution. So that could have been my future had I gone to law school. The place is, is full of attorneys. I swear there are more attorneys Nothing than scientists. Um, and attorneys are not as well trained in statistics as um, people in social sciences. So they were just having a heck of a time trying to figure out how they could demonstrate that, in fact, American companies were dealing with the waste. Because, they, you know, they were doing things like trying to take the weight of trucks going one way versus the other way. Um, water depth. Um, because you were putting effluent into water, what would happen to it? I mean, it was just this craziness trying to mesh what the scientists were able to measure and what the attorneys needed to see. In a way, so there, there, there was something underlying that, and the other piece of it was um, literally pollution at the borders as a public health issue. Trade between the United States and Mexico and the immediate air quality issues is at the border because the um, Mexican um, uh, laws governing um, mobile emissions, literally from cars and trucks, um, are as stringent as the United States, but not as well enforced. And for instance, they don't have a very simple rule regarding catalytic converters, which you can go and you can look if there isn't there kind of thing. It's something that you can maintain. So they don't have a really good way of making sure that there's not a lot of exhaust. As trade increases at the border, Mexican trucks sit idle for hours, increasing pollution at the borders. Now some of that may wash sufficiently that it doesn't impact the region's ability to meet um, air quality laws in the United States, but it does have a huge detrimental effect on the people living there in terms of their public health. So there were agreements that dealt with that particular issue. How are we going to move folks through here? So at the time of NAFTA, in fact... Would you like another glass of wine? No, thank you. I'm all right. I'll be right back with another Coke for you. So the, at, the, um, at the time of NAFTA, one of the big discussions was, are we finally going to get some more um, border crossings for trucks so we can spread out that pollution? Because there are only a few that they were heavily going through. So Tijuana was one of them. And one of the places I studied was, was Juarez. And so you had a lot coming through there. And uh, by the way, these uh, maquiladoras or maquilas that Julianne's mentioned were the product of the end of a Bracero guest worker program between Mexico and the United States that existed after the war, I guess, until the mid-60s. And then to deal with the fact that you know, all kinds of complicated things happen in the mid-60s in the US, immigration gets liberalized in many ways so that people of color are more welcome than had been the case in the past. Uh, but the guest worker program over this side for Mexicans on the West Coast is ended. And in its place, there is a sort of bonded warehouse and manufacturing deal that is struck such that it becomes possible for manufacturing entities set up ideally with US money but it turned out often to be uh, Japanese other mm -hmm. countries money over the border in Mexico to take advantage of cheap labor. 
can send their goods back into the United States without paying tariffs. Mm -hmm. So this is why Mexico became the biggest television set producer in the world, for example, uh, and has just just gotten back ahead of Vietnam and China during the recession. Uh, and it's why it's one of the biggest manufacturers of all kinds of electronics components mm -hmm. in these maquilas or maquiladoras, which are like free trade zones mm -hmm. that are established just on the Mexican side of the US-Mexican border. I hope I got that mm -hmm. or that's right. It's perfect. Yeah. perfect. That's right. So, um, yes, so that's the, the kind of thing I looked at in my dissertation, wow. was to take the game theory, generate hypotheses, and then go out and see if the case study material supported that. And um, actually it did. I mean, it was easier to see on the Canadian side because the subnational uh, legal changes are much cleaner and the, when they're passed, they're enforced. So you could clearly see that by the time you got to an international accord, it essentially rubber stamped something that had already happened. And what I was interested in the time in showing was that so much of the public in general looks at international courts as, okay, we've signed on to this and then we go do something. And what I wanted to demonstrate was that there are many cases in which it's, it's more of an after effect, that this long period of negotiation brings you through a process of change. So by the time you, you uh, sign the agreement, it's already there. So in the Mexican case, it's not as clean, but you can still see See the process happening right here. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's really good. A little bit. A little bit more. That's good. Thank you. All right. Anything else I can grab for you, folks? I think we're okay. Cheers. Enjoy. Thank you so much. So that's... And what was the, the assumption about conduct on the part of participants that game theory elucidated? Um, the game was actually, what I, wanted, what I modeled was, um, I'm trying to remember what this model looked like, you'd think it'd be etched in my mind, it's been a, it's been a long while. But um, what I wanted to look at was compensation up to the point that I'd written my dissertation, much of the work on international environmental agreements was touchy-feely, feel good, we all get the science right, and we hold hands, and we change consciousness, and, and everything. And what I wanted to demonstrate is... <laughs> Sounds like my idea of marriage. I think that's why my marriage is with such failures. Yeah, anyway, moving right along. <laughs> yeah. So, um, at the time, the hardcore interests of nation states, the actual. Sorry to interrupt. is back from our break. I was, was a very quick lunch. Yeah, so. It's great. Thank you. <laughs> so she'll take care of you guys the rest of the day. All right, thanks a lot. Enjoy. Cheers. Thank you very much. Folks doing okay right now? We're good, thank okay. you. So, although now it's pretty standard, I mean, I teach this material now and I just present it as this is, this is how it's done. There are real interests at stake and changing technologies is costly and somebody has to bear those costs. That wasn't as much a part of the discourse at the time. And so what I want to do is bring in that there actually are those costs and who pays them. Right. And so that's what the model demonstrated. And so what it, what it suggested was that there's a long process by which nations go back and forth yeah. and alter their policy. So by the time that they reach agreement, 
they've worked out those costs. Those, those wrinkles. So in a lot of ways, when we as voters or readers are following the debate about the ratification of NAFTA, in the United mm -hmm. States, the Senate is the ultimate sort of source of agreement mm -hmm. um, on the ratification of treaties. They have to go through the Congress. Um, the president, obviously, in his or her, it's always been his administration, is crucially involved, but they do have to go through a kind of parliamentary ratification. In fact, a lot of that is spectacle, mm -hmm. is what you're saying, and the, the nitty-gritty has been sorted out empirically, maybe right. over decades. Right. So, in this particular, in these particular um, cases, Mexico's, the US-Mexico Mexico case in NAFTA was um, sort of interesting one to kind of watch. The, the, because that one you could see the fast track authority was given, and that goes all the way back to the 30s and the Reciprocal, Rate, uh, Reciprocal Trade Agreements Act. I know it sounds, I, I go on and on about this with my students <laughs> sometimes. They're like, why does she care about 1935, 1934 so much? But I go, but it's, it's present, it's what we see. So when the president negotiates, He's negotiating on the basis of what he thinks will pass, knowing that they've given the to give fast track authority means that the um, that our legislature is going to vote up or down. They're not going to nitpick through the treaty. Right, so it's not to going be to be a sort of line item right. disagreement uh, where there's constant give and take between right. the administration and the legislature. Right. So the president knows that. So they go into the negotiation, in many cases, with a negotiating text that is indicative of what the United States is capable of doing. And that is often, in many cases, going to look like what our policy, um, sort of our policy regime looks like, what it, where it's going. And of course, the president's going to have much more information than we do about what policies are online, what's going to be hung up, what's going to happen, etc. So they go in, and, and again, I mentioned the Mexico case because I was able, in my research, to get a hold of the negotiating texts. And you could see how they come together, how the lines get crossed out on either side, because on the Mexican side, they're doing the same thing. But they know they can only go so far. And they've got to come, and through that process, it wasn't, so in other words, you don't get a case where they sign the agreement and then the United States gives Mexico a bunch of money to help them out. You have this process where the United States knows in order to get NAFTA, Mexico's going to have to come this far. They can't do that. So, wow, we're going to make all this research money available. In this case, it was about $385 million to start and then additional monies that were made available to bring... Um, to do a research also, but then some just grant money to bring the Mexican side up to par to make this happen. But it begins to, you, you begin to see some very basic economics in that, in that um, sort of your coast there tells you to be assigned property rights, you know, efficiently and effectively, then he or she or they who most desire that particular change are going to pay for that change to happen. And so that's what I was able to show. And so in the Canadian case, it's a little bit clearer, um, but you don't see the machinations happen. In the Mexico case, I was able to show this back and forth. So when you get to the agreement, they're done. They're already there. There wasn't anything to happen afterward, which was, which was new at the time. Now we sort of know that. We teach that. It's in the textbooks.
you helped put it there, it seems. Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, we don't always get all the credit we deserve. No, sadness. Have another drink, you'll feel better. <laughs> now, in addition to this wonky work, policy mm -hmm. work, it's interesting that the two halves of yourself, as it were, in college, in your undergraduate degree, were never in fact completely separated in mm -hmm. that you were looking at journalism, you were looking at international relations, but you've continued along a track of interest in communication slash media mm -hmm. since that time mm -hmm. uh, in connection with these environmental right. questions mm -hmm. right. within the international frame. Mm -hmm. yeah? So you actually brought the two bits together right. after the dissertation. Mm -hmm. yeah? mm -hmm. um, Probably not immediately, because the process of getting tenure sort of is this focus on making something of the dissertation and then trying to do something beyond that. And um, in some departments, I think the University of California might have a, a corner on those kinds of departments, they're fairly rigid about what counts and what doesn't count. And so um, I was I did do one, um, an edited volume on uh, on technology and its use in international relations very early on. And then more recently, I worked with a communications person, um, Jillian Youngs, and we started looking at more the internet uh, today and sort of the meaning of that in terms of the environment. But that, I believe, was just post-tenure before, before I got to that point. The first piece was very international relations oriented, very what does the internet have to do with security, environment, gender, sorts of things. Um, but the piece with, um, or the work that we started with, with Jillian was really to think about how the internet has changed the environment, to really open up the box of what we call the environment that we move in, and to think about that. And we haven't, I don't think, reached a point where we can articulate very clearly what that means, except to suggest that um, when you talk about sustainability in the environment, the environment that people care about is not just the natural environment, it's not just air quality and such. They want sustainability of their communities, the communities that they build virtually as well as, as not. Is like another glass of wine? Not just yet. So that's what we're exploring and Jillian just took a new post and so she's been very tied up and I think in acclimating to that, but that's where that sort of work is going. And then the other thing I've done, which is um, prior to our conversation here, um, Toby and I were talking about sort of um, where do podcasts and such fit. And I've been really working at where does the blogosphere, where does social media take us in terms of both our identities as academics, is that, you know, that sort of issue, and then where my research is going and who my audiences are. Um, you might say I move from it being an academic audience to, I do a lot of policy work, so it's a policymaker audience, but now I'm sort of looking at a broader, this is his last one, he has okay. water after this. Oh, okay, no problem. <laughs> but what this broader audience uh, might be because um, one of the things I learned in journalism, I hope, is to write well. And so a lot of academics don't do that. And I found that there's simply by writing some of the material that, um, taking care in the writing, I can actually carry it into a broader audience. It's not as if the public is different necessarily from the academic 
audience and that um, certainly as a public university we should care about that. We should care about our research being something that makes the lives that people live better and not just pads our vita. And so that's where I've really been the last couple of years is wrestling with that and since that's why I sort of asked Toby what does he do with this or how does he use this <laughs> yeah. because my um, my experience so far is that on the most positive side, academia doesn't know what to do with that. They don't know what to do with research that you put in a blog that's peer-reviewed. What is that? Or research that you post on your own blog and gets reviews and is sent out and such and is more widely read, vetted than the process of peer review at the most negative side is it doesn't count. If it's not a peer review journal, it doesn't count. So that's what I've been dealing with is not just using my own work but studying that process. It's very interesting. Very interesting. I think it's complicated, isn't it? Mm -hmm. In the extreme. Uh, often less so in the sciences. Right, so the sciences have begun to figure this out because so much of their work I'm, I'm, I work with a lot of engineers. My current work is on um, new uh, new technologies for clean fuels, and um, and uh, so I work with a lot of engineers. And their work is—it's non-controversial that their work is applied. For me to have applied work, it's sort of second rate. But their work is naturally applied. They are encouraged to solve problems, to seek grants that enable them to. Yeah. Uh, develop a new technology, test it, and put it into production. And in that case, sometimes the process of writing the grants, vetting those, the grant proposals are, are like many papers in many ways. That whole process often gets that material out, and it's sort of vetted in, what is it called, um, post-publication peer review. So they've had to look at how do you evaluate research in that way because by the time, say you write an article and you apply for the grant on the basis of that article, you could have the money and be doing the research before the article is published. So, but you only get credit for the one. How do you deal with that? So there are a number of articles out now where they're trying to come up with a way to evaluate the kinds of comments you get on your blogs, the um, number of um, you know sort of retreats and shares and things that you get, and identifying who the community is. And it's sort of very interesting. The most recently, there was an article in the New York Times that talked about the people that are doing this have so much data that we don't have the capacity yet to analyze the data involved to come up with a rubric for understanding what all this means. But the sciences are definitely ahead of us. They don't have the trouble that we have in the social sciences. I've really noticed that in the field of economics, the interesting radical figures who were jumping away from the neoliberal monism of the mm -hmm. past are all doing it on blogs mm -hmm. because they've been frozen out of conventional bourgeois economics association journals for decades and they have hundreds of thousands of people following them. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. I, I read uh, John Quiggan's book Zombie Economics. Mm -hmm. Have you read that? I've seen it. I haven't read it's it yet. It's a ripper as they say mm -hmm. in the classics mm -hmm. and basically it's stapled together from blogs. Mm -hmm. Princeton published it I think 
There are one or two moments when it looks like it was stapled together and mm -hmm. could have done with a, another copy editing, which is true of many books, articles and postage stamps. But it's remarkable because it went through an extraordinary, immediate peer reaction mm -hmm. that enabled him to enrich his writing. Mm -hmm. uh, and this is someone, he's a very eminent economist, who does get published in Bourgeois Economics Association safe houses. Mm -hmm. But not when he's saying what he really thinks. <laughs> right, 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 right. Well, I know that I went to a, um, what is it, uh, the Globalization Association meeting, which I've always gone to the International Studies Association meeting. And I have, you know, a lot of good friends there. And we have a very, we have a, it's mothers, but it really means parents, and mothers in international relations groups that <laughs> I like to hang with, dealing with, you know, the issues of parenting and, and academia. Um, so I've always gone to that, but last year I went to the Globalization Studies, Globalization Studies Association meeting, GSA, I guess that's right. And it's predominantly sociologists, and a lot of people studying social movements, and a lot of people doing um, much more participant observation than I see among my own colleagues. And um, the, the references that people were using, many more blogs, many more online sources, um, the media, the, the presence of the media in the meeting was very different. Everybody had sort of, you know, computers and things and people would reference things and they'd be called up and you'd be commenting on something that was online in a way I'd never seen in the conventional meeting setup that um, I've been to. So, my, you know, my big international media is the National Studies Association and the environmental studies section of that, one of the things we've been charged with is greening the, the meeting. And so when we suggested the meeting should maybe meet not as often, employ um, some kind of um, virtual participation, all these kinds of things, we're told, no, it's too expensive. And here we are with this, I'm at this meeting on, you know, a, a shoestring budget organization. <laughs> we're able to do it. So, and people, you know, people Skyped in and the whole bit, and there was no problem with it. And we were just one barrier after another in terms of the conventional setup. And I'm hoping that that will change, but there, there is a problem with sort of the bigness of the conventional institutions. Thinking about policy work, I'm going to talk for a bit here so you get a chance to That's have okay. more of your soup before right. it gets completely cold. Thinking of the policy work, this interests me because at one level, the social sciences in the United States historically, as in many places, have been in many ways dedicated to the welfare and warfare bureaucracies, the twin giant bureaucracies of this country, and have done a lot of applied work historically. It's often been crucial to their theorization, their financial standing, their professional status, and so on. But they've also eschewed lots of policy workers insufficiently theoretical or methodologically pure and overly driven by political needs of the day or whatever or written for an audience that is technocrats or politicians rather than members of the elect. I'm not suggesting this is true of University of California Riverside of Department not. of Political Science but I'd be interested in your take on, because you're very involved in policy work, A, how policy makers respond to academics, and B, how academics respond to policy work. Well, 
The first part, I actually wrote some about. There is a, a small piece of the policy literature that's on what's called policy networks. And in fact, academics are crucial to policy networks. So I'm my main, uh, for doing international relations, I always sort of have this caveat that for about 10 years, my main work has been on um, energy and air quality in California, again, in part because of the children. I couldn't travel as much, as easily. And so I focused on this area. And um, the one of the studies I actually did was on these policy networks. And academics are crucial to them. But um, there is some hesitation. There is, I mean, you have to sort of build up your credibility in that group so that they they welcome you in. You get the inside take. And so, um, for instance, um, we were in a meeting, and this was on distributed generation, so this goes back a few years, but the in California we had rolling blackouts at that period. And, when electricity um, is having to be shut down in particular parts of the grid mm -hmm. due to energy distribution supply problems. Mm -hmm. So um, a number of people in California, I mean, we have laws about backup generators. Backup generators that are affordable are extremely polluting. And so you need to get a, a you need to have a special waiver to have them. And typically it's, it's going to be universities and hospitals, um, some places that have very high data, uh, data maintenance that they need to maintain their computers. Uh, hospitals are another one. Um, there, however, there are, people can go to Home Depot and other you know, big box uh, such places and buy generators. They're diesel fueled and extremely polluting. So what we were charged with was one, to find out, is it so bad if people have backup generators? And the other part was to weigh in on the policy. And so um, we came very, I mean, the, at the end of the study, the, the upshot of, what it, of it is that we shouldn't have distributed generation, um, not until we can afford clean distributed generation. Because the, um, the it, it would be, if you replace the blackouts in San Diego, with distributed generation, the people would die. You would have sort of the, the smog death of the 1950s. Um, it's that bad. There, there's that bad in terms of pollution. So we got into a discussion, and um, they didn't want to. They didn't. They didn't want to hear that. The advocates, the nonprofit organizations that really wanted distributed generation. Um, in part because they, there's an environmental justice piece to it and sort of you should breathe your own pollution and so if your generator's right outside your house, uh, you have to breathe your own pollution. So it's a good thing in a sense. There is a way in it's which a it's logic. a good thing. Yeah, yeah. But the densities and the topography of Southern California are such that you would be gassing people who have no choice in, in that situation. That you're really better off to have your plants at a distance and because they're much more efficient. The, the, Electrical plants, the big ones we have now, are astounding. Um, but so we got into this debate, and they weren't buying the efficiencies, is what it was. Mm -hmm. The policymakers were not buying the technological efficiencies capable. Yeah. And um, for, in order for them to to buy that argument, um, it had taken years of building up credibility that they would believe the numbers we brought to them. 
and would allow us, in one case, that my co-author, Jim Lentz, who's very respected, very well-known in the South Coast area for air quality issues, also formerly UCR, UCR professor, um, he, uh, he phoned up uh, colleagues, our colleagues on the East Coast, and talked about, you know, to get the figures on the, the actual efficiencies of the most polluting um, uh, large plants. And so on the East Coast, they still have coal-fired plants. And so the coal-fired plants are more are cleaner than the distributed generation that's typically available to people. That's changed some, but at the time, you could go get a, um, I mean, we went down to Home Depot and we, okay, what would it cost to get one to run my house? $149 to get a diesel generator. Uh, to get this, a similar one that was clean, $3,000 at the time. So there was no way that you could move, you could have a policy that moved you to distributed generation um, at that at that time. So there's a very close relationship because there is there's information that academics have, there's access to means of analysis um, that that the policymakers don't have. Um, there's knowledge that they don't have. So they do depend on us, but you have to build up credibility. In terms of looking the other way, in general, any kind of policy work you do is second rate to publishing in academic journals, period. Um, I don't know if you knew uh, Linda Fernandez. She was an environmental economist, or a natural resource economist, I think would be the proper title, at UCR. And she was the first person I know to get tenure in part on policy work. She wrote in um, a section of her, we have to write a statement. A portion of her statement was on policy impact and what she made the case for. And that became a model because I did it as well and others did it afterwards to say, hey, there are some of us that may not be making this academic, what is that figure that they use? This, they, they rank journals <laughs> based on impact scores that maybe we're not hitting those journals because policy journals may not even hit those registers, but we're right. actually changing policy and that should be valuable. That's fascinating. So. There, there can be some rewards, mm -hmm. some recognition of this value. Um, I think that's terrifically important. We've got about a quarter of an hour left, mm -hmm. and I wondered if I could turn us back to these books you edited for a moment. Mm -hmm. uh, in particular, the I'm interested in questions to do with communications and the environment mm -hmm. that you've addressed. Uh, what you think are the major what, what were the major questions I guess your book came out maybe a decade ago right what were the major questions then and how they might have changed today what's different in the here and now um, at that time we asked a very simple question um, the, the, the process was started I think the, the book was probably you're right probably about a decade ago is when it was published um, so the questions were asked at the very start of the internet having been available to lots of people. And the question was very simple. Can I get another wee bottle of this, please? Another one? Sure. This, please. And another, another glass, glass of wine. Yeah. And so our question was actually very simple. How would the internet impact international relations? Fairly straightforward. Most of... <laughs> I pulled a uh, face. Yeah. <laughs> uh, up until up until that point, 
There hadn't been a lot that was concrete where you look at the internet. There were the people in the postmodern types who talked a lot about speed, the speeding up of things and the way that you could manipulate information and there was a lot of that. But there wasn't any concrete there were there were very there was very little in the way of concrete information about we have these various technologies and how they impacted society and then we have this internet and what is different about that, etc. So um, the text was separated into your typical, you know, security and economics, etc., etc. And most of it suggested that um, technology doesn't make that big of a difference. Honestly, it would just be, you know, so if if you were if you see international relations the power politics game, then technology just makes it more makes it easier to play the power politics game. It doesn't change. Things may happen more quickly, game. but they're not going to. They're not going change, to change in terms of the dynamics of who gets what they want. So it's a sort of realist model of international right. relations. So in general, that's what the tenor of the discussion was. Right. It would just add hopes. But not that that was all not positive. I mean, we had one piece in there that looked at. Um, that look at human rights issues. Well, in general, human rights is something that's been that's been improved by technology. So whether it's radios, television, whatever. So internet would boost that. So if it's oh. a positive trend, you also get that. So the two big changes that we saw, one's a re I think a real change, and the other one is um, what Jilly and I are looking at, the environment piece. The woman, Deborah Stienstra, that wrote on gender, at the time, she wrote a piece that basically said the internet should facilitate communication. Women are good at communication, yet we're lagging way, way behind in using the internet. And so the projections at that time was that this is terrible. This has just given men a bigger voice. Well, certainly we've seen that turn around to some extent. Um, uh, you have a lot of women on online now. You have con conferences about the mom bloggers. Um, you have mom.net. <coughs> yes, it's called in, in Britain anyway. Right, so they so it's they a all key <coughs> voting block that everyone gets obsessed about. Right, so their opinions are very quickly, thank you, and ably shared mm -hmm. on all kinds of political issues relating right. to families. Thank you very much. So that's changed, and then I get, I, I mean, I don't know the exact number, but I believe that um, more women own um, uh, online businesses than men or the most successful online businesses are owned by women or, or something along those lines. So They're certainly responsible, I didn't know that, but I can believe it, they're certainly responsible for more consumer electronics purchases in the United States than men are. Right, 83% of the consumer purchases in the United States are women. But a lot of yes. that is men's underwear. Well, and I can... You know, the, I, only, I can the only people who buy men's underwear are okay. gay men and straight women. Okay, well that's actually some information. I'm going to add this little bit that I wasn't... <laughs> in, in, wasn't going to, to do. I, I'm very much a participant, kind of observer sort of person. <laughs> I also have four children. I need to get rid of their clothes. So I, um, my sisters and I have an online consignment clothing business. And uh, it was initially to, um, I used to represent a, uh, a designer. So I got to wear her clothes. It was fabulous and everything. But at the end of the day, I had a lot more clothes than I could possibly use. So <laughs> I needed to sell them. And then we had piles of kids' clothes piling up that we hadn't been able to give away. So we used to open the store online and over time we've taken in a lot more sorts of things and one lot of clothing that came to us to sell was men's underwear. Like fancy boxers. <laughs> yeah, you know. Second hand? They hadn't really been worn. They'd been gifted. We said they hadn't really been worn. Well they'd been a gift item. They had been washed but not really worn. They weren't the style. Regifted. It, was, it, was re it could be regifted, yes. So 
We thought, well, we'll just put it out there. Those things sold in less than a week. <laughs> wow. And it was all men buying them, or at least the person buying them really? had a men's name, well, man's name. 70% of, no, I'm not talking about online sales, but in general, sales of men's underwear, I think, are women. Mm -hmm. I, would, I would bet. I buy because they want their guys underwear. to look okay right, when there's right. not a lot on. And also, men can't be bothered. They can't be bothered. That's exactly it. Because I think it's beneath their contempt to buy socks and underwear. Right. So just as a side, there is <laughs> there is something there's something to that. But in any case, we saw that turn around. Yeah. And the one with respect to the environment, the big thing there was that the, that where they saw that's where the authors saw the environment or the technology and the environment coming together was in organizing that your environmental activists tend to be liberal, they tend to be well-educated, there were a lot of tendencies that thought these folks are going to adopt these technologies and they're going to use it for organizing. That has certainly happened. But when Jillian and I went back and looked at it, we were interested in two things. One was the animosity that you're, you know, your hardcore, not your run-of-the-mill environmentalists that go out and buy a hybrid. I mean, they're very much embracers of technology. But you have this kind of old school, deep ecology, back to basics, you know, live in the commune. That's, no that's, electricity. That's people. antithetical. Yeah. So, I mean, my, my kids and I, I have one here who was with me. We went and lived on a commune a couple summers ago. And yes, they had electricity and it was all generated yeah. there on yeah. solar panels. But you, you were strongly discouraged from using electricity. They didn't want you to use computers or your phones or anything. So what Jillian and I initially sought to look at was that tension. What's happening to environmental philosophy today, considering so many of your environmentalists have embraced the technology, they live in upscale places, you know, they drive their cool little hybrids and they recycle. Kind of what do you do with that? And um, we, uh, we've written some on that. I'm not completely happy with where a lot of that's gone, but the part that's been more interesting was to explore the meaning of environment that's happened and how people understand their environment and how nature is so very scarce. The wild, this thing that we think that we're protecting is so far away. So many campaigns are about um, conservation areas or about parks that aren't nature per se in the way that, you know, sort of a, a, a marsh was talking about in the 1800s. I mean... No, they're sealed off governmental spaces. Right, it's a very different conversation. So you're talking yeah. about really mm. um, a protection of all this artificial yeah. nature. And yeah. then, well, if that's the case, then the fact that people want to protect their online environments, whether it's a game space or it's a, something, a society created up social media, or whatever, what's really the difference? And so we've been playing with that a little bit. Um, the tack that we've taken is that, um, and this is why I was on the commune to sort of explore this, is the, um, the notion of community. When you really look at it, some of the early environmental philosophers that advocated a lot of this breaking away, living off the land, they were seeking a level of community that didn't seem possible in the modern world. So what happens when they're in this world where people feel that level of community without necessarily having access to, you know, a multi-hundred-year-old tree <laughs> or something? And so that's that's what we're exploring now. And so um, uh, we've written one, we've written two pieces on it, but we're still sort of we don't we don't have a theory. It's more commentary. Yeah, of course, all right. And you guys, I think, edited together a special issue of a journal. Didn't yes. You? Yes. How could people find that? 
Um, I actually, I was, oddly enough, I was um, looking uh, looking that up to see sort of how some of this has been cited, and it's fairly well cited for being a relatively low-ranking journal. I don't know that it's, it's even in many of the ISI categories or whatever. The Institute for Scientific Information, which is the instrument of domination of <laughs> academic knowledge in the United States and regrettably more and more other countries. Mm -hmm. So Anyway, what is the name of the journal? I'm trying to think. I knew you were going to say that. Sorry. Um, what is it? Social? I have to think about it. International Journal of Society and Communication. Something along Something like those that. lines. And, and it's housed in, in it's, I believe it's housed in Britain or one of the, of the universities there. You can find it under Julianne Allison and Gillian Young, right. anyway, probably. That's how I found it, mm -hmm. rather than through the name. Yes, and I mean, I find this very sad, the fact that there's a constant hierarchization of outlets. Uh, instead of, if you have to have hierarchies, a hierarchization of the knowledge. And this is one of those things that actually going back to sort of how our peers view things, um, I, I've been strongly encouraged not to do things like that, which is often viewed as why would you not publish in Journal A instead of Journal B? Well, the reason that we did that is that Jillian and I felt we were both tenured professors and this was a new journal that we wanted to encourage. And to support it. Yes. And so we chose to do to, to publish it there, not because we didn't think that it couldn't get published elsewhere, yeah. but to the, uh, most of the other um, contributors, one was um, one was very close to tenure, but the rest of them were junior were junior faculty at universities. But we wanted to demonstrate sort of the value of this work, and most of them were women, so that was another part of our agenda and that the backgrounds were international. We had people from so many different universities internationally, and that was something we wanted to support. It's not something generally supported by your highest ranking universities. Right. <laughs> the other day I was looking at a companion to political philosophy that came out about five or six years ago with a very renowned publisher. Mm -hmm. It had about 40 contributions, all in English, all by white people, almost all by men, and all by people in Anglo countries. Mm -hmm. You can't seriously think this is political philosophy, can you? Mm -hmm. How can you possibly imagine that? Mm -hmm. What do you think the rest of the world is? Not even a play toy. It's mm -hmm. not even worthy of consideration. Mm -hmm. Your world is the bloody world. Mm -hmm. I couldn't believe it, actually. Oh, yeah. But of course, as you imply, that is often what gets the, the positive responses institutionally. Right, right. So, just to finish off, because we want to add women and stir at the end. You know, <laughs> add women and stir. Yeah. Thank you for that. Remember that old expression? Yes, funny, I do. That old expression. But, but to be serious, I wondered if you could just meditate for a moment with us about the question of women and environmental justice in particular. Mm -hmm. uh, environmental justice is a concept you've mentioned before, and it is actually quite a good one. It's a sort of old-fashioned 18th century physiocratic idea in a sense. Uh, but it's been a very important civil rights issue here in the United States and in many mm -hmm. countries in terms of First Peoples, in terms of African Americans and Latinos especially mm -hmm. in the United States. But where do women fit into environmental justice concerns, would you say? Or where do gender issues, let's put it that way, fit in? Um, they're actually a huge part of it. Um, I mean, you can come at this in just straightforward numbers. Women participate in environmental organizations 
at higher frequencies than men do. Um, if you actually trace many uh, instances of discovery of problems back, they're often women. Um, if you look at, you know, global warming is the big thing, but if you look at the tangential issues of forests and biodiversity and energy and air quality issues, it's women that face that on a day-to-day -day basis, especially women who are impoverished. So um, one of my classes, a student actually took this up, and, and uh, he wanted to really get at this, you know, what do they mean about women? So they sort of pretended that they were women in, um, you know, in Africa somewhere, or even some parts of India, um, relatively rural, and they were charged with getting water. And it, this was a summer school class, it was about, you know, triple-digit sort of things, and they set up a scenario where the water was up by the sea. We have a hill behind the university with a sea up there, and that they had to go to that that sea without water, because they'd used it all from the day before, and get the water and carry it down. And their reports on that were sort of amazing. They were like, this should be driving the way that we do policy. That it is the most marginalized people that feel the impacts of whatever the abuse is, whether, like I said, whether it's, it's forest destruction or water or air or whatever, it's women that face that first and foremost. Um, but their voices, although they're a part of activists, they're not a part of um, the policy making so much. When they are, women typically put more money on the environment, environmental protection, laws of that kind than they do on security sorts of issues, which is sort of interesting. There's a new report released um, this week, and it's making the rounds under different kinds of covers, but basically has all the statistics on women, and the United States ranks 90th in terms of the number of women that we have in the legislature. And so if you wonder why we were able to spend so much on two foreign wars, as opposed to improving environmental protection, human rights, uh, etc., the answer would be sort of right there. And since we're a big chunk of the money internationally, it does, I mean, it makes a huge, it makes a huge difference. So women do, women do, I think, matter very critically in terms of environmental justice. Uh, I don't know if you've heard the name Ariel Sala before? I haven't, I'm sorry. She is, um, I'm not sure if she is Australian, but she's certainly working in Australia. And um, she has put her, she has built her daily life. So she's a modern day, you know, uh, academic. Um, great training, all of those kinds of things, working at a major university in Australia, and she's basically built her life to emulate subsistence life, subsistence living. And um, in part demonstration, but also to sort of say, this is this is where we have to take our message. This is where we have to look for how we, to, in order to go forward, we have to look at how are women in subsistence agricultural societies living? How are they able to do this? How do they live without a refrigerator? Because we can't all have these refrigerators at this rate with 7 billion people on the planet. How do they feed and clothe their families? How do they do that? So she lives in the hills. She doesn't have a refrigerator and therefore doesn't eat or drink anything that requires refrigeration. She doesn't have a car and suffices without that. You know, she has to take public transportation, walk out of the hills, get on the ferry. <laughs> but to demonstrate this, that there is a message, that there is a message there. And those people's lives need to be improved from the bottom up as opposed to feathering our own nests. Right, and women are both the uh, people who experience most harshly mm -hmm. environmental injustice and also those who are in some ways least well placed yes. to change the policies mm -hmm. in this country because of their lack of 
representation directly in the legislature. Yeah? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But it's quite astounding. But it also suggests we've got a refugee just us. moving on down. Oh, I didn't know what he wanted from me. <laughs> <laughs> what that uh, what that suggests is that you know, when you also draw the connection between the bellicose nature of United States foreign policy and its machismo overrepresentation of masculinity in every sense. Uh, and you look at the way in which the Republican Party is losing the female vote uh, in many ways, and, and has been for a while. Um, there are almost rational political lessons to be drawn mm -hmm. from this, as well as utopic ones, mm -hmm. it seems to me. Rational political lessons in terms of furthering the interests of political parties and utopic ones in terms of actually creating uh, an environment in the most metaphorical as well as direct sense of the term that is imbued with questions of justice. Well, thank you very much, Julianne. It's been welcome. wonderful chatting to honor. you. I really appreciate it. And I'm hoping that uh, when you and Gillian are next together, if I'm anywhere nearby, and you have time, we could all sit and chat. That would be fantastic. Because it's fantastic to learn about the work you're doing. Great, thank Cheers. you. Thank you.